Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. and welcome to this Heritage Foundation webinar. I thank you guys for taking the time to join us today and really hope everyone is staying safe and sane. Uh, my name is Anna Quintana. I'm the Senior Policy Analyst for Latin America here at Heritage. And today we're gonna have a discussion on Venezuela. Uh, it's definitely been a dynamic few weeks in the US policy space. You know, just when critics are claiming that the administration has run out of options or is losing momentum, the Department of Justice indicts Maduro and over a dozen members of his inner circle for narco-terrorism and then proposes this ambitious power-sharing transition agreement uh, to walk us through these recent U.S. policy initiatives and give us an update on the state of play. Our featured speaker today is Deputy Assistant Secretary uh, of State for Cuba and Venezuela, Kerry Philippine. Kerry, we are honored you made the time to join us today. Joining us as well is my heritage colleague, David Shedd, former acting director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Kerry is going to provide opening remarks. We're going to have a bit of a discussion, and then I'll moderate a Q&A from our online participants. Uh, David, thanks again for joining us. Do you have a few thoughts to share before we turn it over to Kerry? Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, or maybe afternoon, wherever you might be. And uh, Anna, thank you for that introduction. And Carrie, thank you very much for joining us today in terms of this conversation about Venezuela. What I find fascinating is that we were about a year ago, right at this point, looking at the largest protests, and you had Guaido and Leopoldo and, and the rest of them really at what looked to be a major pivot point. And one year later, we, we look at the momentum that has uh, been garnered toward uh, to replacing the Maduro regime in terms of the, the democratic opposition. And so we'll be very interested in hearing from you and obviously the questions from the audience as well. So it's a real privilege to have you here, but also to be doing this event that, uh, that Heritage has pulled together in, in order to have this conversation. So really over to you now and uh, look forward to the engagement uh, along the, the next, I guess, one hour. So. Great, thank you so much, David, and thank you, Anna, and to the Heritage Foundation for having me. I think it's really important to take advantage of the time that we have to hear not only the questions, but also some of the discussion points. You know, the, the administration is, is really interested in kind of better explain exactly what has transpired and what our policy is on Venezuela, um, because it can be difficult to get all the information out there in the midst of all of the um, spread of news or on the coronavirus. So I really appreciate the continued attention on Venezuela that the Heritage Foundation has. And for everybody who's joining, uh, continuing this focus is really the best way that we can make sure that we see a democratic transition in Venezuela. 
So to talk about exactly what we proposed recently with um, what the Secretary of State referred to as a democratic uh, transition framework, I wanna actually start with what our theory of change has been over the last 18 months or so that we've been heightening this attention on Venezuela. And it really boils down to this idea of pressure. Our administration has been criticized over the past few months for employing a campaign of maximum pressure. And the question is always, well, what is this pressure going to accomplish? Our theory of change has always been that as we get more and more pressure on the regime, that pressure will lead to a political process because the Maduro regime will recognize that time is no longer on its side and it needs to engage in good faith negotiations for a transition. Previous attempts at a negotiation, as all of us know, were not fruitful. That's either the ones that were led by the Vatican, the ones that were led by the Dominican Republic, or the most recent ones in 2019 that were led by Norway. And part of the reason they weren't fruitful is because the Maduro regime just used it to amplify its own position, to continue to attack and oppress and weaken the democratic actors, because they thought that this was a moment for them to leverage themselves and increase their power. So our theory has always been, the more we make it clear that they will be weakened over time, the more pressure there is on them, the more likely they are to actually participate fruitfully and productively in a negotiation process. So I mentioned that because this is kind of the, the natural outgrowth of that pressure campaign. They're not two discrete units. As we've seen the last 18 months of pressure, the last 18 months of having the PDVSA sanctions, which are really starting to finally take a significant bite out of the Maduro regime's access to income, we've designated over 200 entities, we've removed visas for hundreds and hundreds of Venezuelan regime officials, We've reestablished um, the uh, Rio Treaty, which has focused on multilateral sanctions from the region against the Maduro regime. Um, we realized that this might be the point at which it makes sense to offer this off-ramp, to offer a solution and a productive way out. And I also think it's important to offer such a thing right now when hope and optimism and a light at the end of the tunnel is critically important for the people of Venezuela. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what this framework does. So this framework is not a U.S. proposal. I want to make that very, very clear. This framework actually comes primarily from negotiations that were already had between the Maduro regime and the government of Juan Guaido during the Oslo process. So most of what you see there will not be unfamiliar to either side. And frankly, a lot of it had already been worked out by the parties during the negotiation process. But the reason why Oslo didn't work is because the Maduro regime, as we've said, did not engage in good faith. And so we think that now with the additional pressure that's been brought to bear on the Maduro regime since the Oslo process is the moment that this discussion can come out in the public. So if we're talking about this plan as being largely taken from Barbados, I wanna to point to four different things that this plan has that were not present in the Barbados plan that we think increases the chance of its success. The first one is, as I said, we're now at a different point in our pressure campaign. We're certainly not at the apex. Um, we, we have a lot more tools at our disposal. I remember back in August before we announced our designation of the entire Venezuelan government, 
uh, we were being told that the Trump administration no longer has any tools to use against the Maduro regime. We proved that wrong in August. We've continued that pressure. So we have a lot more at our disposal. Um, that being said, we do think the pressure is significantly high enough um, for us to propose something that could get the regime to engage in good faith. Um, the second reason is during Oslo, there was always this question by the regime, when will the U.S. remove sanctions? And the removal of sanctions was never articulated in length um, by the United States during the Oslo process. And so that's another new addition here. What we've really tried to do is in, um, develop a proposal that has a realistic expectation of success and includes elements of when US sanctions would be lifted. I do think it's important to emphasize that the framework should be read as a step-by-step -step process. Um, that's important because we are not proposing that US sanctions would be lifted without any kind of confidence building measure. What we're saying is that sanctions would begin to be lifted following certain actions that are undertaken by both the democratic actors and the Maduro regime. The third thing that's different between this framework and what had previously been discussed is that we're making this public. Something that we found when we were talking with um, those in Venezuela was that only the Maduro regime negotiators and Maduro himself were aware of just how far the opposition was willing to go in order to preserve the equities and interests of people like dissident Chavistas, of people in the pursuit, of military officials. And so Maduro was able to spread a false narrative about how the opposition was untrustworthy and how they would never protect the military and they would try to separate it and, and, and um, fragment it and do this sort of debathification process. And so by making it public, we're making it clear that this is a conversation for the entire population of Venezuela to engage on. And they will therefore realize that a lot of what they're interested in, whether they support Guaido and the democratic actors or whether they're a member of PSU, will actually be um, uh, protected within a transitional government, and that the real purpose is simply free and fair elections, which I think people have not trusted to date. And then the last thing that's different here, which goes along with the public piece, is accountability. As we make this public, as we make it transparent, it's increasingly difficult for either side, whether it's the United States, whether it's the democratic actors under Juan Guaido, or whether it's the, um, the Maduro regime, it's increasingly difficult for them to, um, to not adhere to the terms that are laid out once they're agreed to. And so that transparency is incredibly important as well, because that will allow us to have a much more fruitful and productive dialogue. So, um, so that's the how we've kind of articulated this and how this framework is a little bit different than what was proposed at Oslo. I think another important piece to emphasize is this is not a take it or leave it plan. It's not an ultimatum. Um, this is a starting point for dialogue, a starting point for negotiation. What we see as the next steps from here is that as more and more countries, and we've already seen dozens and dozens of countries support this as a path forward, as we see more and more countries support this framework, there's going to be more external pressure put on Maduro to actually respond to it and to engage with it and not just outright reject it as he's done to date. Um, we also believe that as more and more inside Venezuela see how their equities are protected, see that there is a way out, see that there's a path towards sanctions relief and a path towards democracy and freedom, they will exert even ever increasing political pressure on Maduro inside the country. So again, this combination of internal and external pressure will we think get Maduro to finally agree to come to the table by getting everybody around Maduro to recognize that this is important for the future of Venezuela. 
I also think another next step will be identifying a, a concrete mechanism for a negotiation, uh, whether this is uh, Norway or another actor who decides to take on the role of a mediator. That, I think, will be a critical next uh, step forward. Um, and then a, a final kind of step that we have um, that we that we need to be mindful of is that this is not taking place within a vacuum. Obviously, we're in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. Um, Venezuela has been hard hit. We're all seeing the numbers from the regime. These are not numbers that we believe we can trust. Um, they've said something like 189 cases. I think the Democratic opposition anticipates it's closer to 3,400, if not much more. If you compare it to Brazil, for example, with 25,000 cases, uh, even Colombia has thousands of cases. So we do have to be mindful of continued humanitarian assistance in the middle of this pandemic. And we're working very closely closely with Juan Guaido, we're working closely with independent NGOs in the UN in order to bring that assistance into Venezuela. So I'm happy to chat about that as well. Um, so this kind of long-term focus on the political solution, which will ultimately have the most drastic improvement on the humanitarian situation, as well as the short-term approach of um, providing more humanitarian assistance directly to Venezuela, I think is what our focus will be over the next couple of weeks. And then lastly, I want to talk about uh, consistency and I want to talk about what happens if this doesn't work. And then I'm happy to um, open up for a dialogue and for a question and answer session. Um, we have been told that what we're doing with the um, Department of Justice announcements, with the Department of Defense announcements about an increased counter narcotics presence in the region, and then the sort of carrot offered by the State Department shows that the administration is, is disjointed and, and lacks consistency. Uh, this couldn't be farther from the truth. We've been coordinating with all of our partners. And as I've said, that pressure is not a separate piece. That pressure is critical to making sure that we actually can get the Maduro regime to come to the table to negotiate in good faith. So that's not to say that uh, any additional pressure means that we're not supporting a diplomatic option. It's very important that that pressure continues in order to get us to a diplomatic solution. And that leads me to the final point, which is if we are not able to get a response from Maduro that's productive, if he denies the international community's demand for a rejuvenated negotiation process, then that pressure is going to continue. Um, that will be our, our next step to make sure that we get us closer and closer and closer to a moment when the Maduro regime actually will engage in good faith. We are hoping that we're there. We're hoping that the Maduro regime will ultimately engage with this. Um, we think that that's very likely. Um, and we're going to continue to press this plan and continue our humanitarian assistance in the meantime, while also continuing to ramp up the pressure. Because as I say, all of those things are very, very uniquely connected as part of our strategy to bring democracy back to Venezuela. Um, and that's it in terms of my, uh, my comments, but I'm really looking forward to the conversation and any questions that, uh, that the audience has. Thanks for sharing that, Carrie. You know, I, I really thank you for, for also highlighting how the new transition plan is completely different, right? I mean, highlighting how it's actually forcing Maduro to engage in good faith and how it's publicizing the plan. So it doesn't allow the Maduro regime to engage in, dis in disinformation and it doesn't allow them to manipulate essentially what you guys are proposing and also shows the Venezuelan people that, you know, the United States is trying to provide a productive way out of this. Um, so no, that, that was, that was great. David, I don't know if you have any thoughts to share before we dive into questions, cause we are getting quite a few coming in. 
Yes, I thought, uh, thank you very much, uh, Carrie. I think the argument of, of the maximized pressure approach is great and the interaction of those pressure points. One thing that before we take the questions would be useful if you could talk about the exogenous players, principally Russia and Cuba, as it applies to them, because they have been to some degree, maybe to a large degree at, at different points in this journey, spoilers. And, and so what, what can you say about them in the context of this pressure campaign? Sure, I think that's absolutely right, that Russia and Cuba are the two largest international spoilers to date. Russia primarily was a spoiler in the sort of oil swaps that it was doing. Um, we are seeing some shift there. It's hard to exactly evaluate what is uh, behind and motivating the Russians there. Um, you know, they, the Russians were the only ones that publicly came out critical of our plan um, to date. Uh, they have been kind of all over the place internally in their communications with us as well. So um, we are, we do know that the Russians um, have said at least that they support a, a transitional government, that they support a democratic Venezuela, um, but of course they're insisting that Maduro stay in power. Um, that of course is a non-starter for us, so we're going to try to do as much as we can to remove their um, their role as a, as a significant voice here. We've already designated Rosneft Trading, and as they change their posture, we will continue to designate any Russian entities that um, that are, are violating the will of the Venezuelan people. So. Um, so that's our approach to to the Russians on Cuba. One of the key pieces in this transition plan talks about the removal of any foreign security forces, and that's number three in the plan, which means it's very, very early on. The Cubans are one of the key people here that we're envisioning needing to depart Venezuela. It is impossible to have a free Venezuela when you have 25,000 Cubans in the country. And that includes security forces. It also includes, you know, so-called doctors and teachers, all of whom are being deployed in order to spread propaganda, in order to create uh, more social control for the Venezuelan government or for the Venezuelan regime. So, um, so that's going to be critical. And we will not compromise on the Cubans being out of Venezuela under any circumstances. That's probably one of the most significant pieces of what the U.S. is insisting on are the Cubans to leave the country. That's great. Thank you. I'll turn it over to Anna in terms of the questions, unless you had something else to say, Anna. Sure. Just uh, kind of to, to piggyback off that, the point of the expelling of the foreign security services, do you, I think, and obviously you can't, I mean, I, I can imagine this is probably a difficult question, but do you envision there to be much buy-in from the Chavistas on this? Because this is going to require, what, three-fourths of the National Assembly in order to accomplish that. Do you think right now that there's, as things stand, that there is enough buy-in and that the sanctions relief that will be given as a result is enough of an incentive for it? Because, I mean, it seems like a pretty significant incentive for it to kind of mitigate the lack of buy-in. But where do you think it stands right now? So 
the three-fourths vote is um, in order to proactively authorize someone. So it's not that they would depart if they get a three-fourths vote, it's that all foreign forces would immediately depart unless they're authorized by three-fourths vote. Um, and so that's a, that's a bit of a different spin on it. Um, and that's because, you know, it's, it's really up to the Venezuelans if they do want to have foreign forces there and they authorize it, then, um, then that's obviously their prerogative. Um, we don't think that there would be enough support to keep the Cubans in by three-fourths vote. Um, the other thing that I would mention is that um, the Maduro regime has done a pretty good job of antagonizing the, the Cubans inadvertently within his military structure because he has been focused on making sure that it is only Cubans who are protecting him in the sort of presidential honor guard, that it's only Cubans and colectivos that he's relying on in order to do his dirty work in antagonizing and harassing and intimidating the uh, Venezuelan public. And so a lot of people in the military don't like the fact that he has completely compromised the sovereignty and independence of the Venezuelan military and given it over to the control of the Cubans. And so we suspect that that sentiment is very pervasive inside the Venezuelan military. Um, and so there actually would be an interest of many of those to reclaim their leadership role in providing security for Venezuela. Um, and, and, uh, and so we think that they would, they would likely support kicking the, the Cubans out so that it can be Venezuela that is provided for and by Venezuelans. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to go into questions now because I've been receiving questions since about nine o'clock this morning. <laughs> so the first one is, could you explain the rationale behind the guarantees offered by the State Department's uh, proposal to the senior command of the Venezuelan military, particularly to the Minister of Defense, Vladimir Padrino? Negotiating with a narco dictatorship could lead the country towards a competitive authoritarian government rather than a hybrid democracy. Sure. So that's a great question. This is something that has gotten a lot of attention in the media. Um, you know, following the U.S. indictment of Padrino Lopez, there was this question of, okay, so what does that mean for this guarantee, this first guarantee that the military high command remains in place? And here I would just go back to a couple of different principles. Number one is that obviously in a preferred U.S. proposal, we would not have Padrino Lopez in power. We would not have Maduro in power, Diosdado Cabello, Delcy Rodriguez, any of these people in power. It's not really the U.S. place to say who is and who isn't um, in power. That's going to be up to the Venezuelans to ultimately decide. And everything that we're putting forward in this plan is kind of a, a realistic negotiating starting point. So that's why I said at the beginning, this is not a U.S. proposal. If this were a U.S. proposal, there would be a lot of different things that we've already sort of allowed for um, to change in this, in this framework. Um, in terms of why we put this in here and why this guarantee is so important, this guarantee is important because right now we are seeing a complete fragmentation of the Venezuelan security system. We're seeing them utilize colectivos. We're seeing the pervasive spread of guns across porous borders. We're seeing the use of pranes and other prison gangs. We're seeing the use of old militias that have been out of service. And this is largely because the Venezuelan military, while they have not taken the stand against Maduro that we think they should have by saying, our job is to protect the constitution and you need to leave. 
it is true that they are frustrated by the fact that they are being called on to do things that are completely antithetical to what they're supposed to be doing. They're being called on to attack um, the Venezuelan people. And their concern is that in any transition, they will be sort of uh, undergoing a debathification kind of process, that they won't have a role in providing security for Venezuela. And so this is really there to guarantee that we recognize that in a transition, security is going to be critical and we will need to rely on a centralized Venezuelan security force in order to provide that security. Without it, there cannot be free and fair elections. And so that's why it's important to keep the military together as a unit. And that was the importance of this guarantee. That said, we, we are certain that this won't lead to any kind of military dictatorship if, if you kind of follow the framework, because what really is doing with governing is that all executive power is going to be invested in this transitional council of states, which is composed of members of Guaido's camp and members of the Maduro regime. And those will all have, you know, Guaido's team will have a veto on Maduro's camp and Maduro's team will have a veto on Guaido's camp. And so that's what we think will ensure that there will be a, a moderate and successful transitional government that can focus on leading to those free and fair elections. Of course, as I said at the outset, there's a lot that's up for discussion here. So what I just said is, is just assuming that this framework were to be adopted as is, um, but there's always an opportunity for, um, for both sides to kind of shift it around during a negotiation process. Are indictments up for a negotiation? Like, is anybody who is an indicted official right now kind of can that slate be wiped clean? No. So, you know, and this is where I'm proud to live in a country where there's a separation of powers. Yeah. Um, we had said from the outset, um, we had made it very, very clear. There is an off ramp for everyone except narco traffickers. We've been saying that for months and months and months. And unfortunately, Maduro waited until he became indicted. Uh, to negotiate. He, he may have had more options before the indictment came down, but now it's down and there's nothing for us as the State Department to do to get involved in that. Um, now, that being said, I'm sure there are other individuals who still have an opening um, who may not yet have been indicted, and maybe that's mm -hmm. coming down the pike too. So the door does end up closing more and more. You know, we're not going to interfere with the Justice Department. Um, if a grand jury says that there's enough evidence to indict someone, um, then that's something that needs to move forward. You know, we in this country are dedicated to justice. And, uh, and there's, there's no way that the United States State Department is going to get involved in negotiating away these indictments. Um, other things are up for negotiation. Obviously, everything in the framework is, is indicating our willingness to negotiate. But unfortunately, Maduro waited too long. Um, and, and now there's nothing for him to do uh, with respect to the U.S. indictment. Okay. All right. So let's go to the sec to the so the next question, is state looking into allegations of collusion between members of, of the Spanish government and Maduro-linked narco-traffickers? If more evidence arises to confirm these reports, would the U.S. consider sanctions on these Spanish officials? This is from Jorge Gonzalez Gallarza. And guys, just one quick thing I do ask, if you could also provide me the organization that you're affiliated with. Thank you. Uh, that's a great question, too. I think we've made it pretty clear that um, we will sanction anyone who's involved in um, narco trafficking, um, who's involved in sanctions evasion. Over the last few months, we've made that very clear through private engagements with companies, through engagements with governments. Um, so I don't want to speculate on these specific Spanish companies, but if the question is, if we get evidence that companies in general or, and, or countries 
are involved in and complicit in narco trafficking, then certainly that would be something that we would be interested in um, in calling attention to and designating. Sure. Okay. So this is actually a question for the both of you. What about China in this context? Um, so I can take it first. So uh, China's also been really interesting over the last couple of months. Um, we have seen how China kind of took a step back. A lot of its companies ended up departing Venezuela in the middle of last year, near the end of last year. Um, we have seen them come in by providing some humanitarian assistance to Venezuela. Of course, it's really interesting that some of those test kits that were provided were then sent by Venezuela to other countries, um, indicating that they care very little about their population. They just care about making sure that they're promoting their international reputation and their image abroad. Um, China, I do think, you know, is an important character for us to be mindful of. We did speak to them about this framework. Um, we continue to engage with the Chinese, um, and and we're hopeful that that we can get to a place with China that's a little bit more uh, productive than it has been to date, but certainly they were important for us to speak to about this framework uh, as we announced it. Okay, Shad, do you want to add anything? Sure. Uh, it, it strikes me that, that China on the global stage and where it finds itself currently with uh, the coronavirus is, is putting out a lot of fires and, and obviously uh, using soft power to around the globe in such a way that to think of them dedicating a, a much greater effort in Venezuela strikes me as probably not likely. It also worries a lot about its standing in the rest of Latin America and, and its investment of, of both time and treasure as it, as it applies to the sovereign wealth funds that they're spreading about. And we could talk about Africa and elsewhere. So it's it, it strikes me that they won't go as far as, say, India when it comes to the oil. Uh, but I think that you have a a, a, a a player who really isn't playing in in a major way there, as Kerry said, and I think that really it's about the Russians and and the uh, Cubans in in particular when it comes to Venezuela. And and I would just add very quickly because I agree 100% with what David said in this point about they're concerned about their reputation in Latin America writ large is really, really important. Because what we have to remember is that for the first time, we are seeing countries that have typically had strong relationships with China or with Cuba start to draw attention to China and Cuba's negative role in Venezuela and start to make it clear that this isn't just an issue of China's relationship with Venezuela or Cuba's relationship with Venezuela. It's about China's relationship with the region as a whole. That's what TR has made clear. I know that Brazil and Ecuador and Bolivia and all of and, and all of these other countries in the region have made it very, very clear and strongly known that the more that China starts to engage in, in Venezuela and compromise the prospects for a political solution, the more they are going to compromise their relationship with, um, with Latin America. And so I think that's a really critical point. It's, it's very different from where we have been in years past, um, where there wasn't this sense of, of Cuba and China as being such uh, nefarious actors as they're seen as today. Okay. And so this next one comes from our friend Joseph Hugh-Meyer. Uh, what are the benchmarks and metrics used to assess the maximum pressure strategy, whether the maximum pressure strategy is working and that the Maduro regime will negotiate in good faith? Sure. Um, so 
I think when we talk about benchmarks, one of the biggest things for us to remember is that we have the Venezuelan Affairs Unit, which is essentially our embassy stationed out of Bogota that focuses on direct engagement with Venezuelans on the ground and getting a sense of exactly what's going on inside the country, making sure that messages are getting out and making sure that they're in contact with those who are um, dissident chavistas, members of the military, um, you know, NGO partners, everyday Venezuelans. And so a lot of what we tried to focus on is something a little bit more intangible than what you would typically see as a benchmark. And that is, what is the rate at which members of the regime or their interlocutors are reaching out to the United States? And what is the amount that we're seeing um, the Venezuelan public, not just come out and protest, but also um, share thoughts against the Venezuelan uh, military or against the Venezuelan regime? If you look, for example, at the gasoline lines um, that are being seen all throughout Venezuela today, especially those in Caracas, which is quite unusual, um, what you see are members of the Venezuelan regime come up to fill with gasoline and then get you know, thrown out um, and, and, and run out of the area by your everyday Venezuelan. And so that demonstrates that the discontent is growing more and more, that the blame is very clearly on the Maduro regime. And so those are some of the sort of more intangible things that we look at. We also obviously do look at the larger metrics, like how much oil is being produced by Venezuela and how much is getting out and um, how much assistance they're uh, receiving in terms of financial assistance from other countries that are boosting the regime, um, how much we're able to cut off the, the illicit gold trade, for example. Those are all other things that, that definitely factor in as benchmarks. But I think the most significant ones are really the ones that you hear on the ground that are maybe a little bit less public. Sure. Okay. All right. Here to the next one. What efforts have been made to plan for the reconstruction of Venezuela's weakened infrastructure, their economy, et cetera, in a post-Maduro regime, but also the physical this infrastructure as well? This is such an important part of this. And one of the things that has been really important to the Secretary of State is that while we focus on getting to a day zero, you know, the day of transition, that we not lose sight of, you know, day zero plus one plus two plus three. This is not going to be an easy process of stabilization by any stretch of the imagination. Um, this is going to take a lot of time because what we're talking about is infrastructure that has been in collapse for decades. Mm -hmm. So there are economic pillars that we need to look at. There are humanitarian pillars we need to look at. There are governance pillars we need to look at. And there are, of course, security pillars that we need to look at. This is partially included in our plan. This is this is why, by the way, going back to this question about the military, this is why keeping them together is so important, because the security piece and maintaining the security in a post-transition Venezuela is going to be especially important. It's going to need help from the international community, but it's also going to need a force inside Venezuela that can make sure that they're kind of assisting and stabilizing the country as well. Um, so we've been looking at those four different pillars. We have articulated with the interagency different, um, different ways in which the United States can help, where other countries can come into play, where different NGOs can come in. Um, it obviously changes on a daily basis because Everything depends on how the transition happens and when the transition happens. But those four pillars of humanitarian security, economy, and governance are the four key pillars that we're using to assess how uh, the United States can be useful in a stabilization. We're, what we're talking about is a multi-year process 
probably over a decade to get Venezuela back to where it needs to be in terms of, you know, oil production and all of that, just because we really will need to help repair infrastructure that has been in decline for over 20 years. Okay. And, and David, so David, you were in the government as a senior official in both the stabilization of Iraq and Afghanistan and the reconstruction, right? Knowing what you know now from your experiences, what would you say are the minefields to watch out for in this post, in this put kind of, you know, in the, from the day zero to on in the reconstruction process? If I had one macro observation to make, it would be that uh, the first contact of, of a great plan doesn't survive the best laid plans. That said, that's not an excuse for not doing it. And I think the lessons learned in the aftermath of 9-11 going into Afghanistan and subsequently after March 2003 in Iraq is that just throwing money at the problem does not solve it. And what I would argue is that we ought to be working with people that had experience in both of those um, war zones after, after the fact of 9-11 in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq after the invasion in March 2003 to really think about the lessons learned. And they're, they're available. And if you take um, uh, former government officials, former NGOs, others that were working that, and look at what were the foundational pieces. So let me just give you one very quick example. I believe in the security pillar that Carrie's talking about, the work needs to be put in place today to understand who the investors and in, in the Washington area, we would call them the contractors who are going to go in and they may be multinational contractors, not just American, to help the Venezuelan people in partnership with them to set that up in such a way that you're already talking today about a biometric system. You're talking about um, a capability to restore uh, the, the uh, security apparatus around the protection of the leadership. All of this is going to have to, it'll be messy, as Kerry said, and there is there is no good excuse for not planning it and, and that that will survive first contact exactly how you planned it? No. But you still need to think very concretely about what are those key elements for zero day plus 30, zero day plus 90 days and, and so on. And as Carrie pointed out, multi-year effort and prioritizing. The other thing that uh, we found out in Iraq, and it's a great example, is that one size in the country doesn't fiddle. In other words, you may do for Caracas something very different than you will do in some other area of the country by way of prioritization. And so thinking about that and finding strong Venezuelan partners to do this with. And the last comment I would make was the, the debacle of debathification. You did away with all the people who understood security. So you want to work with the very people who have a history of, with vetting, obviously, to work with them to build and clean the system as we know it today. And that's going to be a multi-year process. Great. Thank you. 
All right. Uh, this next one comes from Kristen Martinez Gugleri from WOLA. Sorry if I butchered your last name. Um, how would you respond to critics, uh, this one goes to Carrie, that argue that recent Trump administration actions, notably the indictments and the Southcom operation in the Caribbean, will raise exit costs and disincentivize the Maduro government from returning to the negotiating table? So Kristen, this obviously is a is a question that we've received quite a lot, and it's an important one. Um, I think much of the contrary, it, it it actually incentivizes the Maduro regime to come to the negotiating table. I mean, um, again, Maduro had waited long enough that unfortunately, you know, there there was enough evidence against him to to do an indictment, and so. Um, there's nothing that can be done about that. As I said, there's a number of other players inside Venezuela. I, I don't know, obviously, the status of where certain indictments or future indictments may be, but I would imagine that there are individuals who are closely linked to some of the um, the networks that were identified in the most recent indictments. They may be wondering what their future is. They still have an opportunity to um, to negotiate uh, and to, to get to a position where we can see a, a transition in Venezuela and, and potentially change the status of, of their uh, impending cases. Um, you know, I think, again, this goes back to our theory of change. The more pressure there is, the more um, effective it will be in bringing Maduro to come to the table to negotiate in good, in good faith. He is not someone who is just going to come to the table because he cares about what's best for Venezuela. We've seen that over the last you know, few years, that all he cares about is staying in power and his personal safety. Um, if he starts to realize that his safety and security and his you know, livelihood and the money that he's making aren't going to be coming in, uh, then that may change his calculus. So we think it very much incentivizes. Um, you know, I would say that the indictments did not have a foreign policy cause, but they do have a foreign policy implication, which is that it will, will get people to realize that the United States is going to continue to pursue justice, is going to continue to pursue pressure, um, and, and there needs to be, you know, if there if there wants if there's a want for a change, if there's a want for um, for some off-ramp or way out, they need to take advantage of that now. Um, with the counter-narcotics operation. This is something that has been a desperate, desperate demand of many in the government, in our government, for, for many, many years of wanting to focus on the fact that we have Americans, 70,000 Americans that are killed every year because of narcotics that are being trafficked into the United States from the region. Um, this has been highlighted as a priority by President Trump. Um, this was an operation that has been, uh, you know, very long-term planning uh, and, and not something that was kind of scrubbed together last minute. And so that is very much focused on uh, preventing the continued proliferation of narcotics to our country and, and saving American lives. So that I would describe more as a kind of homeland security initiative than a foreign policy initiative. All right. So this next one is for the both of you, given both of your experience in, in Latin America. Uh, could you explain why the U.S. should take a leading position with respect to Venezuela, particularly given the U.S.'s historical experience in Latin America and the resentments we have earned from the people in these countries? Why not let other countries in the region take the lead? So I would, I would dispute that we're taking the lead. I mean, again, this framework is something that has been largely put together by the Venezuelan people. 
Um, the fact of the United States being involved is because the Venezuelan people have asked us to be involved. The Venezuelan people know the importance and the power that the United States brings to bear from an economic front. Um, and the Venezuelan people had been reaching out to us for years, asking us to get involved um, to support their demands for a transition. So uh, we are here just responding to what the Venezuelans are asking us to do. Um, and that's also why I think it's important to remember that this framework is a framework. It's for the international community's consideration. It's for ultimate determination and negotiation by the Venezuelan parties, um, not by the United States. And so um, we are trying to ensure that the Venezuelan people continue to, to lead. I would simply add to what you said, Carrie. There is an expectation of leadership from the United States, notwithstanding a spotty history with Latin America, uh, going back to the Monroe Doctrine and all of that. But as Kerry said, it's by invitation to an expectation. And when you look at the Lima Group and you look at the Organization of American States, there is an expectation that the United States will be there, but in partnership with the Latin American countries as we look at this. And it's borne out by the joint actions by the Lima Group vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela. I'm, I'm closely associated, for example, with Uruguay, which has been uh, somewhat off of, of on, off the message and now is on the message with President Lacalle. As you look at the change and is back in the fold as, as a country, Uruguay that is, in terms of the pressure campaign that Kerry so eloquently described at, at the outset of this, this conversation. And so you, you, you can fall back on, you know, the Allende years or Guatemala 1954. You, you can go all over that all over again, or you can say, where can the United States have an opportunity to jointly work with the, the countries of Latin America, Central South America to make a difference vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Venezuela? And I think the record now shows that it's actually working quite well. Definitely. Um, all right, this next question comes from Marcela Prieto Botero from Vision Americas. Uh, she wants to know, how is the U.S. government working with the Colombian government, uh, piggybacking off of the issue of cooperation with our regional partners, um, on in terms of border controls? It's clear that there is the challenge because not only not only is the ELN there on the, on the Colombia-Venezuela border, but there's also Colombian, Venezuelan, and Mexican cartels that operate there quite freely. This is a critical issue in terms of national security, not only for Colombia, but also for the United States. The, Marcella, it's, it's a great question. Colombia is obviously one of our most central partners in our um, fight to bring democracy back to Venezuela. Obviously, they share a very significant border with Venezuela. Um, they have seen the largest influx of Venezuelan refugees of any country in the region, um, well over 2 million at this point. We're continuing to see um, efforts of Venezuelans to get to Colombia. And coronavirus obviously makes this all the more challenging um, because, of course, now there's an increased demand for Venezuelans to get to other countries where they feel like there's more safety, where they feel like there's better healthcare and better protocols. Um, and so it's something that we need to be especially mindful of. There's a couple of different kind of uh, competing elements here, or I would say um, uh, coordinating elements. So number one, we have the, the borders uh, themselves, which we're seeing trafficking of weapons, we're seeing trafficking of persons, we're seeing migration. Um, you're also seeing number two, 
too, as was pointed out, the ELN, which of course we know the Maduro regime provides a safe haven for the ELN and for the FARC. Um, this is a very, very well-known fact. Um, and, uh, and number three, we have the proliferation of illicit gold. As the Maduro regime became less capable of using oil for revenue, Maduro just recently actually said that it costs more to produce oil in Venezuela than they're actually making income from it. Um, they've switched to illicit gold. And this has been making sure that other security forces, colectivos, pranes, et cetera, now have more control over different mines. They now are trafficking people across the borders. They're taking people um, you know, to, to work in the mines. So it's becoming increasingly challenging. Um, we are working exceptionally closely, really hand in hand with the Colombians. I speak to the Colombians on a very regular basis. Um, so does our assistant secretary and so does the special representative for Venezuela, Elliot Abrams. Um, we are also making sure that we're providing assistance to Venezuela, uh, to Colombia. We just recently announced $8.5 million for a COVID response in Colombia. And we also, of course, already have um, I, I, well over 200 million, I think close to 300 million that we have provided to Colombia um, in humanitarian assistance since 2017. So it is critically important that we maintain that relationship and Colombia has been a very vocal voice and a very vocal leader also in the Lima group and within the Rio Treaty context. Okay, uh, our next question is from Daniel DiMartino. Uh, how can the U.S. Make sure, make, make sure that the Cubans leave Venezuela without any presence in the country, without any U.S. presence in, in the country? This again is something that um, indicates why it's important that we focus on getting a political solution um, and that we focus on different elements that kind of come to play within this framework. So yes, we're insisting on all security forces departing. Uh, we will need to obviously um, work on verifying that. This is something that um, we can work with the various military uh, forces on. You know, uh, something that people I think don't realize is that while the military, there are some in the military who are allowing the Cubans to take a leadership role, this is because Maduro is forcing them to do so. The vast majority of military officers want nothing to do with the Cubans, uh, want them completely out of the country because as I said before, they're undermining the sovereignty of the Venezuelan military. Um, so we will have to work with our Venezuelan partners. We'll have to work with the transitional government to make sure that we're assessing that, in fact, these um, these Cuban security forces and any other security forces have indeed departed. So we will have to do verification on that. An area that will help with that as well is once the transitional government starts to establish more procedures for free and fair elections, there will be international observers um, that will need to come in, whether it's from the OAS or the UN. I don't want to speculate who will be doing that observation, but they'll be there to make sure that there's no intimidation, that there's no role of you know Cubans or others in trying to interfere with the elections. Okay. We've gotten a few questions about the April 22nd deadline that's uh, coming up. Um, I can imagine you probably can't speak a lot about that because it's obviously a Department of Treasury uh, decision, but um, just what can you share any thoughts on what you think could potentially happen or to the extent that you can talk about the U.S. corporate presence, uh, the U.S. corporate energy presence in Venezuela? Sure. Well, as you said, and I can't comment specifically on this general license or on the deadline. Um, you know, I, I suspect that 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 Treasury will be coming out with more information soon. Um, what I can do is try to give a little bit of background and context into how we've been viewing this issue over time and how that's shifted over time. So um, we have 
typically viewed the process of licensing as a question of, is this entity providing any direct material support to the Maduro regime? And if the answer to that was yes, then largely, and there are other considerations as well, but to simplify it, then largely that entity would not be granted a license. And if the answer was no, then largely the entity, you know, would, would go to the next step of consideration for a license. Um, as things have changed, as we've seen shifts in how the Maduro regime is operating, we've also had to consider how our sanctions policy needs to meet the new demand. And part of what we've started to think through is not just direct material support to the Maduro regime, but indirect support to the regime as well. So is this company or is this entity involved in anything which is helping the Maduro regime, even if it's not providing direct income to the Maduro regime? And that's why you've started to see some reporting on the United States and our approach and, and comments about oil swaps and so on and so forth, um, you know, uh, not not really being something that we see as okay within our sanctions framework. And so that shift um, is something that we're carrying forward. Um, I can't comment on how it's implicated specifically within this general license, um, but just to give the viewers a general sense of kind of how we think about these issues when the licenses are, are put forward to us. And we've explained this um, to the companies that have come to us with license requests as well. Okay. Carrie, uh, can I just weigh in on sure, that question? Uh, with with the OFAC license and, and then the an extension if it were to be granted, isn't one of the arguments though that if the US companies, it might be in the energy sector, it might be elsewhere, uh, then cede the space then to the Russians or others, uh, external parties, that may come into that space and so how do you how do you weigh that against what you very articulately defined in terms of material support to the regime and now indirect impact just that element of it of what fills the space that a u.s entity firm company might come out of Sure. And well, as you can imagine, David, there's there's a couple of different things that come into play. Two more that I might mention in addition to this question about material or direct support or indirect support. There's also uh, two additional key pieces in, in the way we think about this, because all of our sanctions need to be really nuanced. We want to make sure that we're not capturing those um, who uh, who shouldn't be sanctions and that, but with that we are capturing every single entity that should be sanctioned or shouldn't be given a license. And so one of the other things that we think about is Number one, how does this play into a future Venezuela? Um, you know, how how would getting rid of this license or authorizing the license affect the future of you know infrastructure development and so on and so forth? So that's been something that's been a part of our our conversations with multiple entities over the last few months, if not longer than that. And then also this question of nationalization or or of you know Russia coming in or China coming in. Um, you know. I suspect that what what we're seeing in Venezuela with the 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 lack of ability to really sell any of its oil because of U.S. sanctions, combined with the low oil pricing um, nowadays, it's going to become increasingly less appealing for any entity, even the Russians, um, who are, have an interest in kind of you know sticking us in the eye. Um, to come in and, and take over uh, these, these oil fields. And the other thing to remember is these are not contracts that have been validated by the National Assembly. And so if the Russians do decide to come in for whatever reason, um, uh, even if it's just a political reason and not a financial one, uh, 
that has not been approved by the National Assembly. That's against the Venezuelan constitution. And so therefore, if the Russians come in and they don't have this official contract and this agreement with the National Assembly, and there is a transitional government, well, Russia will have no real claim to those entities. And so I think they realize that. And I think they know that in order to do anything that will be long lasting for them, um, they're going to have to um, you know, take a step back here. And so if they're looking at this from the perspective of their best interest, then I think that they that they won't seize any any oil fields or or anything like that. But we'll wait and see. You know, the Russians are are hard to predict. Okay. All right. And I think I want to be cognizant of everybody's time and respectful of everybody's working from home lunch hour. Um, this last question comes to us uh, from Astrid Pajar, our dear friend in Boston. Uh, so her question is, uh, evidence-based research and statistics prove that the inclusion of women in peace negotiations increases the likelihood of a durable peace. Neither the Maduro regime nor the Guaido government have a notable female presence at the table during these important negotiations. The transition framework is currently silent on women's participation. Could you please comment on this issue? Um, I think Astrid brings up a really important point, um, and I think it's, it is absolutely clear in the research that, that um, you know, women and, and bringing the different perspective that women bring, particularly to peace negotiations, is especially important. Um, so, you know, I, it's definitely conversations that we've had with the um, with the interim government. The interim government does have a lot of very, very high profile advisors and deputies who are women who have very strong voices with um uh with president Guaido that he listens to very very concretely and clearly um you know i i would think and hope that as we move to a new negotiation process um that there will be additional voices that are included part of the reason barbados failed um, is not only because the maduro regime refused to engage in good faith um, but also because there were certain key voices that weren't included. I mean, for example, the military didn't have any kind of say in any of the process. And I think women is a really critical piece, too. So hopefully as we move closer and closer to the point where this becomes the basis for a new negotiation, there will be female voices and other voices that are included in this. And certainly it's something that we will continue to um, to advocate for. I think that's a very important point. All right, Carrie, do you have any final thoughts? last reflections that you know have come to mind throughout this q a that you know you just want to share with us before we all leave for the day sure well first of all i i do want to thank you anna and david and the heritage foundation for this opportunity um i i very much look forward to uh to continuing our work with you and happy to come on whenever uh whenever you you'd like us to um the only thing that i would add is that you know in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, one of the things that I have been most reflective on is this idea that we're all really in this together, that what happens across the planet, you know, a few months ago is now right here in our backyards. And I think the biggest lesson for us is that we are all committed to this together. We're all in the same world together. And we need to be there for those of us who are still fighting for basic and fundamental rights and basic and fundamental freedoms. Um, this is why the United States thinks it's so important and urgent for a political transition in Venezuela, because while we realize the desperation of the humanitarian solution, 
all of the assistance in the world, the close to $700 million that the United States has provided in, in humanitarian and de development assistance to Venezuela is really only going to be a Band-Aid as long as the Maduro regime is still in power. And so it is critically important that we not lose sight of the political initiative right now. Yes, we need to address humanitarian one, but we also need to focus on that long-term solution. And so we're very, very hopeful that our international allies, that anybody who's a representative of various think tanks or journalists who are on the line will continue to draw attention to what's going on in Venezuela and to the political need for a solution because that is what is going to grant the people of Venezuela the real opportunity um, to, to have you know, freedom, democracy, but also just their livelihoods and their normalcy and their lives back. And I think we're all experiencing what it is now to lack normalcy. And the Venezuelans have been dealing with this for over 18 months, um, actually much longer than that, many, many years. Um, and so I'm hoping that we all collectively focus on this. The more we focus on it, the more international partners focus on it, the more the Maduro regime will need to actually um, come to the table and, and bring us a solution. David, any final thoughts? Yeah, very briefly, building on what Carrie just said, I, I just, uh, heart breaks for the suffering people of Venezuela. And I, as I look at the, the 20 years uh, plus of what they've endured uh, and at an accelerated rate of, of demise of, of services and healthcare and, and the economy writ large, I just think that, as, as Kerry said, all those on this call and, and far beyond, helping build the pressure through multiple points of contact is really absolutely critical. And the last thing I would say is just continue to think about what's the plan for zero day going forward as well. And the time to do that is now, uh, because one, we don't know what the what the predicate will be for for this along the construct of the of the four pillars that will will trigger it and and as you've laid out Carrie but anything can happen at any time as we saw with the Arab Spring or whatever it might be so the planning time is now and we can all be a part of that in terms of thinking about that so thank you for your time today and how well you articulated the uh, the, the the policies no, again, Carrie, thank you so much for making the time in the midst of everything and braving the elements to go into your office to do this for us. We really desperately, greatly appreciate this. And thank you for everybody that joined us online. And I apologize if we weren't able to get to your questions. There was a lot of questions and I just had to sort through as many of them as I possibly could. Carrie, David, thank you all again. And the event will be available online in about one day for everybody to watch again. Thank you all and stay safe. Thank you.